And now it's time for the Wild Side News with your host, Sidney Wildsmith. Globalization. Good for the planet? Bad for the planet? It probably depends on your perspective. For those who see the roots of globalization formed in the secret societies of the 18th century, whose dreams for a one-world government were held and carried out by the secret hands of the Illuminati or the Freemasons, globalization may not be your cup of tea. Or was it the dreams of the wild-eyed intellectuals like the Dulles brothers who formed the seedling CIA? Or is it a natural evolution of life on Earth? Or the spiritual expression of the oneness of all humanity? Whatever it is, it's happening. And we talk with a real live globalist when your voice of the Earth continues here on the Wild Side News. Say what you will about globalization, but the truth is, it's happening whether we like it or not. And the truth is, there are those whose job it is to deal with the effects of globalization because it is and will continue to have dramatic impact on the developing world, which will be pulled into this global change because they literally have no choice. One aspect of a globalizing world is now being felt as global warming or climate change. And some would say this is just some people talking. But for those whose job it is to look at the future and determine what consequence global warming could have on societies, cultures, villages, and indigenous people who will be faced with dealing with these effects, we go straight to the source to find out. Joining us now from Washington, D.C. is Robert T. Watson. He's the Senior Scientist and Senior Advisor with the World Bank. Uh, Dr. Watson, welcome to the Wild Side News. Thank you. You've been involved with issues relating to global warming, actually going back to the time when global warming was probably first being discussed. Give us a, a brief intro to how it is that you come to this uh, focus. Yeah, I, fo I first focused much of my work on an issue called stratospheric ozone depletion, which is where we humans are destroying the ozone layer above us and leading to an increase of ultraviolet radiation at the Earth's surface, which then led to an increase in uh, skin cancer cases. I then suddenly recognized that climate change was probably an even larger problem. And so in the late 1980s, I started to get involved in this issue of to what degree are we humans changing the Earth's climate and what are the implications of those changes to society. As you know, this topic is one that has uh, many different interpretations as to uh, its real significance, et cetera, et cetera. At this point, where does the, the World Bank come in in terms of its recognition of the, the uh, significance of global warming? Yeah, the World Bank recognizes it is a serious issue. There's absolutely no doubt the Earth's climate is changing, and it also is quite clear that most of that change is due to human activities. It's equally clear that the Earth's climate will continue to change over the coming decades, over the coming century. The reason the World Bank is extremely concerned about this issue is that climate change is likely to undermine our main goals of poverty alleviation and economic development in developing countries. The real concern is that climate change could adversely affect 
agricultural productivity in developing countries, adversely affect water resources, lead to an increase in sea level, potentially displacing tens of millions of people. Also, it could actually adversely affect human health through an increase in vector-borne diseases such as malaria and dengue fever or cholera, uh, waterborne disease in developing countries. So the reason the bank takes this issue seriously is we recognize that it could undermine development. In terms of short-term risks that you feel the bank is going to have to start to address, what would you say are some of those short-term risks? There's two approaches that we need to work with with our developing country clients. First is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. That is to say, make sure they get the energy they need for economic development, but try and do it in a climate-friendly way. And in particular, two countries are increasing their generation of electricity, for example, at an incredible rate, India and China. So our first short-term goal is to work with India and China to try and reduce uh, their greenhouse gas emissions from their uh, electricity sector. Secondly is adaptation. Here what we recognize is that many of our client countries are maladapted to today's climate variability. That is to say their agricultural systems, their water resource systems are actually re not resilient to today's climate variability. So our first goal is to first understand how to help our developing country clients become less vulnerable to current climate variability and then effectively, effectively how can we make sure they're less vulnerable to long-term climate change. And the key issues are sea level rise in low-lying deltaic areas or small island states. And the second issue is how to make sure the agriculture and water sectors are resilient to climate variability and climate change. It uh, would be instructive if you have any examples where you're beginning to really have to address this at this point already. Well, certainly we're already working with some low-lying uh, areas such as in Bangladesh, a small Pacific island called Kiribati, to think through when sea level starts to rise significantly, what are their options? Do they retreat inland? Do they try and build seawall defenses? What options do they have? Now, Bangladesh has got options in the sense it's a fairly large country. But unfortunately, it's a very low-lying deltaic area where millions of Bangladeshis live. It's also where much of their agricultural productivity is. It's a very complex deltaic system. And so it's not clear what ensemble of strategies of retreat, building seawall defenses uh, will actually work. But there is a dialogue going on uh, to actually understand what are the best options for the country. In a small country like Kiribati, we're trying to think through again what the options are, but this is a series of very low-lying atolls uh, that sort of spread out across the Pacific Ocean where the highest point is only one meter high. And so they've got some real challenges of how to even deal with it, and, and we're working with them to think through what some of the options might be. We have a major study in India to think through how is the agricultural sector in India and the water resources sector in India already being affected by climate variability and how might that effectively get even worse in the future. So we're trying to understand what are the coping strategies that can be developed to make the agricultural sector in India far less vulnerable to fluctuations in climate and more extreme events, etc. There's many organizations around the world that are addressing this in various forms. How is it that the World Bank will play into these strategies to, to deal with these challenges? 
The World Bank will work with all of the other major players, of course, especially the United Nations Environment Programme, the Food and Agricultural Organization, FAO in Rome, uh, the World Health Organization in Geneva. Um, our, our major role is in implementing projects on the ground. And given that we, are, we have to work on, energy on the energy sector, the agricultural sector, the water sector, one of the issues we're looking at is to what degree are the projects that we're involved in, to what degree are they climate sensitive? In other words, are these projects, if the climate were to change, it would undermine the efficacy of the project? So we're building a screening tool that simply asks the question, on all of the projects we have on any sector throughout the world, is that project sensitive to a changing climate? And if it is, how could we redesign that project to be climate-proof, in other words? So we're trying to do that work, but we do collaborate closely uh, with the other regional, uh, the regional development banks, such as the African Development Bank, the Asian Development Bank, uh, the, the uh, Inter-American Development Bank. We're clearly trying to work much closer with the private sector, who are major players, of course, in development across the world. So we see our role is working with partners, both in other forms of international organizations and the private sector, and continuing the dialogue with our client countries on how to help them climate-proof their investments. In terms of developing countries in particular, what, what specific areas do you think they should be addressing to, to deal with these problems? Well, the most sensitive areas in the world tend to be uh, the low-lying deltaic areas, small island states. They need to deal with the whole issue of sea level rise. But most countries in Africa are extremely vulnerable to a change in climate. And therefore, I would argue the highest priorities in many of the countries in Africa, certain parts of Asia and Latin America, is how to deal with the risk to water resource management and agricultural productivity. One of the basic problems is that throughout the tropics and subtropics, any increase in temperature is likely to lead to a decrease in agricultural productivity, especially in some of the areas where we already have famine and hunger today. Secondly, we, uh, all of the theory uh, suggests that areas that are already dry, the arid and semi-arid areas throughout Africa, Asia, Latin America, are likely to become drier in the future. The wet areas are likely to become wetter. And so the challenge is how to manage our water resources in areas where they're already dry today, they're likely to get even less rainfall. And those that already have probably as much or too much rainfall are going to get even more. So I would argue the two highest priority areas are managing water resources and agriculture. And then, as I say, on the low-lying areas, dealing with sea level rise. Therefore, when you look out 25 years and, and even 50 years, which is what people in the World Bank are uh, confronted, you have to do that. You have to be thinking out that, that far. As I look at this, if this were my job, uh, I would say there are, we're facing some real challenges, particularly as we look at this trade-off between alleviating poverty and, and promoting development. And because, unfortunately, at this point, the development, particularly as we watch China and India emerge, uh, that seems to be focused around a, a fairly consumerist form of economic advance. And as you well know, that's where the rubber meets the road. We cannot just cons continue to consume, and therefore there has to be some potential change of uh, vision into a more sustainable global economy. Tell us what your thoughts are in that regard. 
I mean, the two challenges are, first, how do we get energy, modern energy, to the two billion people throughout the world that don't have any access to modern energy services today? Many, many of these people, many of them in Africa, certain parts of Asia, their only form of heating is burning dung or traditional biomass, sort of wood. And when they burn it inside their homes, it leads to very high levels of air pollution, indoor air pollution, and literally millions of young children and women die every year. So the first challenge is to make sure they get energy for poverty alleviation. What we have to try and do is make it as clean as possible. In, in what we call our middle-income developing countries, such as India and China, they have a huge appetite for energy, not only for poverty alleviation, but for strong economic growth. The challenge there is how can they get the energy they need for poverty alleviation and economic growth, but in a clean form? And in fact, we're, we're working with them literally as we talk. And the question is, as they increase their demand for electricity, how do we get make sure that their coal-fired generation plants are the most efficient in the world? And over the next 5, 10, 20 years, can we even modify those plants with what we call carbon capture and storage? So we don't even release the carbon dioxide from a thermal coal-fired power plant into the atmosphere. It's a, it's a technology that's just becoming available. It probably won't be commercially available really throughout the world for another 10 or 20 years. But we're thinking through how does one provide clean energy that actually eliminates local air pollution and protects the climate system. And so the two sides of the story are the generation of energy. The other side of the story is the use of energy. Transportation is increasing rapidly in many developing countries, especially in India and China. How do we make sure the cars that are on the road are the most efficient you can get? How do we have mass transportation so people can use mass transportation, not individual vehicles? How can we have better land use planning so people don't have to drive or travel so far to work? And so the transportation sector is a very critical sector, but not only in developing countries. It's a critical sector in the USA and Europe. Uh, we're increasing our use of transportation. So how can we have a better transportation systems, increase use of mass transport? And the third, the second area on the use of energy is in the buildings. How can we make the buildings as efficient as possible and the appliances we have inside the buildings as efficient as possible? So in our dialogue with developing countries, we do talk about how do we produce the energy in the cleanest possible fashion, and we also ask the question, how can we use it in the most efficient way? If we can make progress on both sides of that equation, we can have the energy we need for uh, poverty alleviation and economic growth without severe impacts on both local air quality as well as on the climate system. Certainly we see a lot of interest these days in, in clean energy sources, solar, wind, uh, geothermal, et cetera, et cetera. But to address this, particularly the energy side of this, do you feel perhaps that the world really needs to address at, even at a much larger scale the development of these clean tech sources? Yes, what we have to recognize is all, all of the projections suggest that over the next 10, 20 years, much of the energy will still be from coal, oil, and gas. So the first challenge is how do we effectively make our utilization of coal, oil, and gas as clean as possible? Very efficient coal-fired power plants. We uh, try to capture the carbon dioxide from these power plants. How do we make the use of oil in cars as efficient as possible? But in parallel to that, we have to try and work on scaling up our renewable energy sources. As you've said, uh, solar, wind, geothermal, etc. Today, 
with the exception of large hydropower systems, uh, modern renewable energy only accounts for about 3% of total energy production. So even if we double it or triple it in the next 10 or 20 years, it's still only going to be 6 or 10% of the total energy produced in the world. So we need to do research and development, and we have to get what we'll call the prices right to make sure that as we develop these new technologies, there's a way for them to penetrate into the marketplace. So we need a strategy of improving the technology we've got today, trying to make them as efficient as possible, more research and development to improve the technologies, but we've got to get what I call the prices right. So as we do get more renewable energy technologies to be commercially viable, they are used and one of the problems at the moment is we have huge subsidies in many parts of the world on fossil fuels, which actually limits the penetration of these clean energy technologies into the marketplace. How do you see the World Bank really involved in, in creating really a whole new vision for sustainability on this planet? You're just one. You're a big organization, but you are just one. How do you interface and really unite all the various players in this? Because we, it, from my perspective personally, it's something that we simply must do. Well, at the last G8 summit in Glen Eagles, Scotland, last year, um, they asked the World Bank to try to put together an investment framework to deal with clean energy and development. Uh, they asked us to work with the other regional banks. They asked us to work with the private sector. And they were asked us to work with the International Energy Agency. So we're actually in the middle of developing an investment framework. And we've literally put it in sort of what I call three steps. First is how do we get energy that is clean from a local and regional perspective to developing countries? And what are those technologies? What are the policies that are needed? What's the role of the World Bank? What's the role of the private sector? What's the role of our other regional banks? Then we ask the question, what additional do we have to do to make it climate friendly? So what do we need to do from a technology standpoint and a policy standpoint? And then we also ask ourselves the third question, Given that we cannot stop climate change, it's already occurring, and some future climate change is already inevitable, how can we work with our client countries and the private sector and the other international organizations to adapt to climate change? So we're right in the middle of, of developing this uh, paper at the moment, which addresses exactly what you're talking about. What is the role bank? the role of the World Bank, how can we work with the private sector, how do we work with other governments and with other international organizations to try and come up with a vision for clean energy. As we develop this paper, we've already been working with what we call the G plus five, that's the five largest developing countries, China, India, Mexico, Brazil, and South Africa. We've already had detailed conversations with them both with respect to energy generation and adaptation to climate change. And in the next sort of six to nine months, we will expand our conversation with a very large range of developing countries to understand their vision for the future, their need for energy, their concerns about climate change. And as we do talk with developing country clients, we will simultaneously be working with the private sector and the other international organizations. Dr. Watson, if people want to find out uh, your role in all of this, and by the way, you're, you're a very articulate uh, spokesman and you're creating a, a, a really, I think, a, a wonderful perspective on, on what we're facing here and, and how the world has to unite, how can they find out more about that? As soon as we've got this vision document more prepared, we will actually be putting it on a web system for people to actually comment. But they could go to the World Bank website 
and they could actually look up, sort of uh, go to the site that talks about our environmental projects and go to the site that talks about our energy projects and they can still soon get a very good idea of what we're trying to do in the energy sector, what we're trying to do in the environment sector. So we do have a website that has actually some very good descriptions of what our visions are for both energy and environment. And as soon as we further develop this paper on clean energy and development, we'll be putting that on a website and actually we'll be soliciting comments from people as well. Very good. Well, I know you're a very busy man, I can tell uh, in our conversation here. Dr. Robert Watson, Senior Scientist and Senior Advisor with the World Bank, I want to thank you for lending your voice here on the Wild Side News. Sure. Thanks very much. Global warming, it's real. Now, we need to deal with it. Melting polar ice was a dirty look. Shrinking glaciers, a nudge. Then dying coral reefs pushed us, hard. Rising ocean temperatures and extreme weather, an uppercut. Then record-breaking heat waves hit us right where it hurts. Has it occurred to anyone that maybe the Earth is trying to get our attention? We can still reduce greenhouse gas pollution. To find out how, go to fightglobalwarming.com. Brought to you by Environmental Defense, the Robertson Foundation, and the Ad Council.